Welcome to the week in Reorg Europe. My name is Sean Qureshi. I'm a legal analyst and will be joined by my London colleagues, analyst Rob Summers and Ben Kovachka, and legal analyst Minakshi Roy. In episode 5 of our European podcast, we will be taking a detailed look at Atlantia and its subsidiary, Autostrad per Itali, following the tragic bridge collapse in Genoa. In other news, closer to London, Boparan, a large food production and restaurant business in the UK, remains topical with investors. The company has £250 million of senior unsecured notes falling due in July 2019 and its £16 million RCF matures in January. It then has another approximately £600 million of senior notes maturing in July 2021. Coupled with the company's highly publicised breach of food safety standards last year, Boparan seems to be popular for all the wrong reasons. The European high-yield market has recently seen buy-side pushback on some of the very loose documentation currently rampant in the leveraged finance market. Minakshi will be discussing the trends in the market and providing in-depth analysis on the covenants in recent issuances. Moving to the legal news, this week the foreign representative of Agricor appeared before the bankruptcy court in New York, attempting to obtain recognition for its settlement agreement under Chapter 15 of the Bankruptcy Code. Agricor is a large Croatian grocery retailer that entered into extraordinary administration proceedings last year following huge financial losses. Justice Glenn in New York felt unable to grant recognition and enforcement of the settlement agreement with respect of English law debt that was being compromised. The judge did not feel he could bypass the English law principle of the rule in Gibbs, which dictates that only an English court can compromise or extinguish English law governed debt. He told the applicants that they should apply to the English court for an order before returning to the New York court. Listeners will recall a previous Reorg European podcast where we discussed the ruling Gibbs in detail and highlighted some of the challenges it presents to practitioners. Now, back to this week's topics of discussion. Ben, tell us more about Atlantia and the collapsed Italian bridge. Thanks, Sean. So, a brief background. On August 14th, the Morandi Bridge tragically collapsed in the Italian city of Genoa, killing 43 people. The bridge was built in 1967 by the Italian construction company Condotte and represents an important conduit for goods traffic from local ports, as well as serving the Italian Riviera and the southeast coast of France. It is also a key uh, piece of infrastructure for the city, connecting its east and west sides. The Genoa Public Prosecutor's Office has opened an investigation into possible negligent homicide. The head prosecutor blamed human error for the accident. This was the fifth bridge collapse in Italy in five years, according to the Italian daily Il Corriere della Sera. So, to start with, how is Atlantia tied to the bridge and what is the potential fallout from the situation? So, uh, let's start with a quick background on the company. Atlantia is an Italian holding company operating toll motorways and airports. Its primary asset is Autostrada per Italia, a subsidiary which operates about 3,000 kilometers of toll roads in Italy, half of the total, with concessions running to 2042. Autostrade, which was privatized by the Italian government in 1999, is currently 88% owned by Atlantia, which in turn is controlled by the Benetton family. Other investors in Autostrade are Alianza C and China Silk Road Fund. Autostrade comprises 65.3% of Atlantia's 5.973 billion revenue 
and 67% of 3.8 billion euros adjusted EBITDA. Autostrada pays 2.4% of its net profits annually to the grantor to keep the toll roads concession agreement. The second made asset is Aeroporto di Roma, which brings in 15.1% of revenue and 15% of, of EBITDA with Atlantia ownership of 99.4%. Uh, Aeroporto di Roma comprises Fiumicino and Ciampino airports that serve Rome. The company also has concessions for overseas motorways in Brazil, Chile, Poland, and India, which comprise 10.8% of top line of Atlantia and 13.2% of its EBITDA. Furthermore, uh, the company also has three airports in Ivory Coast, which make up 4.7% of revenue and 2.6% of EBITDA. The balance, which we haven't mentioned, is made up by electronic tolling systems and motorways and airport service assets. As of 2017, 50.5% of Atlantia was floated, 30.5% was owned by Syntonia, 8.1% was held by GICPT with BlackRock and Fondazione Casa di Risparmio di Torino holding about 5% each. Interesting. So what was the immediate effect of the bridge collapse on the company? After the bridge collapse, Atlantia's share price dropped 25%. The company burned one quarter of its market cap in a day. It's 20 to 27, one and seven eighths bonds, bonds dropped more than 10 points to the high 80s, bringing the yield to over 3%. Today, the notes are trading in the low 90s with yield at 3%. Autostrada's 1 and 7 eighths 2025 nodes are yielding about 3.24% and were down about 10 points. Autostrada's guaranteed nodes are yielding 1.9% and were down 4 points after the collapse. The huge hit on the financial market was due to the immediate response of the Italian government, which a few, after, a few hours after the tragedy said it started procedures to revoke the concession from Autostrada. Interesting, Ben. So what do you think the Italian government is going to do in response to the disaster? Well, at the moment, it is unclear uh, what the Italian government's next steps will be, whether it will nationalize Autostrada, as per most recent comments made by Luigi Di Maio, pursue a full revocation of the concession from Autostrada, as initially announced, or whether it will mainly inflict a hefty sanction to the company. Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte talked about fines that could amount up to 2.5 billion euros in total. However, Nationalization was rejected by the CEO of Autostrada, who called it a return to the past. To put this in context, nationalization or a concession withdrawal may drive away investors from Italy in a period where several funds are shorting the country's sovereign debt and corporates before this autumn's budget law. Furthermore, a concession withdrawal warrants a compensation payout uh, to the company. Right. Well, nationalization would have serious effects on the company. Has the Italian, Italian government clearly stated its intentions here? So last week, Italian Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini said that he was against nationalizing the motorway network, but a mix of public and private management might be considered. Reuters reported last week that Italy's ruling coalition was, considered, co was considering the idea of state-run Casa Depositi e Prestiti, CDP, buying into Autostrada as a way for the state to regain control of the asset. The Italian Treasury, which controls CDP, has said it is not aware of any such plans. Castellucci, who is Atlantia's CEO, said that cooperation with institutional investment funds, even linked to governments, is in the DNA of the company. CDP already provides funding for Atlantia, including a 1.7 billion euro loan to Autostrade provided last year to bankroll investments on the road network. A tie-up between CDP and Atlantia could be a way to avoid nationalization. 
Great. It would be interesting to discuss the group's borrowing. So could you give us a quick overview of the capital structure? So it's not that simple as, uh, as always. The company carries debt at both the OPCO and HALTCO levels. For Autostrade, the company has 13.4 billion euros outstanding, under 20 bonds and bank debt. However, there are contractual differences across the bonds uh, that the company has outstanding. The Autostrade bonds issued after 2015 make it clear that the notes are gar not guaranteed by Atlantia. This is different for the 5.3 billion euros uh, in 13 Autostrade notes outstanding under the formerly Atlantia's 10 billion euro EMTN program. These notes were pushed down to Autostrade, but Atlantia remained the guarantor. Obviously, these notes carry a better recovery profile due to a recourse to the Holtco as well as the Opco. In this vehicle, uh, the company hosts the Italian motorway concessions and it generates EBITDA of 2.5 billion euros, bringing leverage in the vehicle to 5.5 turns gross. Last year, Allianz SE, EDF Invest and DIF bought a 6.94% stake in Autostrade, valuing the business at about 14.8 billion euros. Atlantia's market cap at the time was about 20.8 billion euros. Then there is about 1.4 billion euros in the ADR OPCO uh, under three notes and bank borrowings. This asset brought in 550 million euros of 2017 EBITDA, levering up the company 2.6 turns. Finally, there are 3 billion euros outstanding in the HALTCO debt under two notes and bank borrowings. The remaining assets under an Autostrada and, and ADR are overseas motorways, overseas airports, and other activities, uh, which altogether bring EBITDA of 661 million uh, euros. Okay. So are there any other liabilities in the capital structure? Um, what's the company's market cap? Sure. So uh, you have the additional derivative liabilities in each vehicle with uh, about 685 million outstanding altogether, which brings total debt of the company, inclusive of these, uh, to about 18.9 uh, uh, billion uh, euros gross and 13.3 billion euros net. Uh, reporting net debt, uh, which also subtracts uh, financial assets such as concession rights and government grants, uh, brings uh, net debt down to 9.6 billion euros and it's the measure that the company uses itself. As of 2017, the consolidated EBITDA was 3.8 billion euros, translating into gross leverage of 5 turns and 3.5 turns on net basis. Atlantia's average cost of debt in 2017 uh, was 1.8%. Market capitalization of the company was 15.1 billion euros as of 28th August. Thanks, Ben. So how's the market looking at the situation? And what are some of the possible outcome scenarios? Right, so after the initial large for fall, Atlantia's bonds rebounded slightly. We understand that some long-only funds have bought more of its notes in order to strengthen their positions, while hedge funds have not got involved in a situation yet, as they are still forming a view on the credit. Generally speaking, investors reviewing the company are considering their options given the limited visibility on the company's future and the highly political nature of the situation. In terms of possible outcomes, a worst-case scenario for the company could mean a full expropriation of Autostrade uh, with no indemnification from the government and no transfer of the company's debt to the new grantor, uh, being the Ministry of Transport. A potential best-case scenario could consist of Autostrade keeping the A10 concession, which includes the Morandi Bridge, and being fined only a relatively small amount of money. That being said, no clear statement has been made and all potential avenues are still being considered by the government.
Great. So that forms a nice segue into the concession agreements. Could you tell us a bit more about the contracts? What's the background here? So the privatization of Italian toll roads started in the late 1990s. The Italian parliament passed law number uh, 101 uh, 2008 on June 6, 2008, which approved all of the draft concessions agreements entered into with a state-owned road operator, ANAS, including the single concession uh, contract entered into by Autostrade and ANAS as the concession grantor in October 2007. The agreement initially allowed Autostrade the right to continue to operate and manage the motorways and related infrastructure until December 31st, 2038. It, Im it implemented a new formula for tariff adjustments, new detailed uh, rules on Autostrade's rights and obligations, and a revised investment plan. The agreement was supposed to expire in December 2038, but it was extended to 2042 following a deal with the European Commission, which was designed to build the Gronda di Ponente Bridge. This viaduct should have uh, worked as an alternative to the collapsed Morandi Bridge, but has been opposed by political parties and local administrations uh, alike in the past few decades. Understood. So who's responsible for the day-to-day -day running of the motorway under the concession agreements? What about maintenance? So under the terms of the concession agreement, Autostrada is responsible for any adjustment works required due to the volume of traffic and service maintenance, as well as connecting the operated motorways to other infrastructure. Autostrada also has to provide uh, maintenance and repair works. Autostrada is still responsible for operating and maintaining the toll roads after the concession expires until it is transferred to ANAS or another state entity. Autostrada is also fully responsible for damage caused to persons which can be attributed to the company. In relation to ANAS role as grantor, uh, it can request information and carry out checks using its access and inspection powers. It is also required to monitor ordinary and extraordinary maintenance works without diminishing Autostrada's responsibilities and obligations in this respect and to oversee Autostrada's financial plan. Great. So what would happen if Autostrada did not fulfill its obligations under the concession agreements? What would be the consequence? So in the event of a very serious breach or gross negligence on the part of Autostrade, ANAS is able to set a date by which Autostrade must provide reasons and justifications for its actions. There will be a revocation of the concession if the grantor does not accept such justifications. If Autostrade does not cure material or continuing non-performance breach within a 60-day period following a notification and rectification process, ANAS, with the Ministry of Economy and Finance, can issue a decree declaring the termination of the concession. In this case, Autostrada is obliged to continue managing the concession until its management is transferred. Under terms of the agreement, a failure to cure the rel relevant breach within the applicable grace period will mean that the concession is transferred to ANAS, who will have to indemnify Autostrada with a cash payment. Such payment will be based on the net present value uh, discounted at market rate of revenues from operations until the end of the concession, net of projected costs, liabilities, investments, and projected taxes for such period, plus taxes due uh, payable by the concessionaire following receipt of any such amount by NAS, less the outstanding financial debt assumed by NAS at the transfer date and projected cash flows from ordinary business until the end of the term. <laughs> it's uh, quite a hefty formula there. Uh, where early termination is due to Autostrada's inability to meet these obligations, the payment will be reduced by 10% plus any damages. Under the concession, Autost 
Autostrada pays 2.4% uh, of its net profits to ANS annually to keep the toll roads concessions, as we've mentioned previously. So, in practice, what does this actually mean? It seems as though the concession has been drafted in Autostrada's favour. Well, it is very difficult to say, as mentioned earlier in the podcast. All of the different scenarios hang in the balance and are being considered. Under the agreement, even when there is a serious breach, the company will be entitled to a cash indemnification payment from ANAS. But on the flip side, let's not forget the Byzantine nature of the Italian procurement contracts. Lawyers based in Italy did tell us that the Italian government might have the legal means to annul the concession agreement if it blatantly contradicts the country's civil or criminal codes. Moreover, Autostrada's serious breach or gross negligence will have to be assessed with appropriate sentencing by a tribunal in which it is likely to be a long and costly litigation process. Understood. So, lastly, is there anything of note in the bond documents that is worth highlighting? So, as I mentioned, there is the guarantee difference when it comes to Autostrada. Basically, that its post-2015 notes are not guaranteed by Atlantia. Also, the Autostrada bondholders benefit from mandatory redemption protection under a put option to the extent that the concession is withdrawn. In the expropriation scenario, the put option would be exercised against the company in financial stress, which may be unable to face its debt obligations. Finally, as with the assumption by Autostrada of Atlantia's obligations under the notes in December 2016, the notes contain a substitution provision, meaning that the note obligations could be assumed by any other issuer, uh, successor in business, transferee or assignee, any subsidiary or any or of any previous substituted company, so that they become the principal debtor uh, in a permitted reorganization or other context. This would not require the consent of the note holders. Thanks, Ben. Rob, Boparin has been very topical among our subscribers, but for those who are unfamiliar, can you provide an overview of the business? And why is it such a topical credit at the moment? Thanks, Sean. In a nutshell, Boparin operates across three segments. Protein, which involves supplying raw meats, with chicken being a key product. Chilled, which sells various private label products, such as ready meals and baked goods, and branded offerings. The big issue is the company's maturity wall. It has 250 million pounds of senior unsecured notes falling due in July 2019, and its 60 million pound RCF matures this coming January. It then has another approximately 600 million pounds of senior notes maturing in July 2021. At the same time, the company faces numerous operational issues that will make it tough to refinance at attractive rates. As a point of reference, the five and a half sterling 2021s are currently yielding around eight and a half percent, while the four and three eighths euro 2021s are currently priced to yield around seven percent. Interesting. So what about the 2019s? So those notes are trading at around 99.5 because the market expects the company to pay at least most of them down from asset sales. For example, in January, the company announced the sale of Goodfellas Pizza for 225 million euros. And in its third quarter results in late June, management said it would use 125 million pounds of these proceeds to pay down the 2019s. On July 30th, the company said it had sold its non-poultry red meat business for an undisclosed amount, but it is likely that most of the proceeds will be used to delever. So there's the expectation that the 2019s will be all right, 
and that they are relatively immune from the operational issues facing the company. What do you mean by that? Are you referring to last year's highly publicised food safety scandal? Well, that's one point. And as a refresher to our listeners, last year the company was front and centre in the press as it was accused of breaching food safety standards. An undercover media-led investigation found that the company sold chickens that had fallen on the floor and that it changed kill date labels on chicken park containers. As a result, Krupp founder, owner and CEO Ranjit Singh Boparan was called to testify in front of the House of Commons Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Committee. The scandal caused customers, including Marks and Spencer, among others, to suspend purchases and forced the company to incur millions of additional costs for things like CCTVs, food safety inspectors, and additional staff training. Okay, so what about other operational challenges? Well, from a cost perspective, an important issue has been input cost inflation. For example, London wheat prices have surged since the start of the year. This is crucial as wheat is used to feed chickens. Other rising costs include spend on packaging and fuel. Another factor includes the impact of supermarket consolidation in the UK and the Sainsbury's Asda merger in particular, and what this will in turn do to purchase prices. Sounds like a lot of uncertainty. How is the company dealing with it? Management has said that it expects the impact of inflation to be minimized starting in the first quarter of its 2019 financial year, the first quarter running from August to the end of October. We'll see what they'll be able to hedge and pass through. In terms of the company's capital structure, Ranjit Boparan has been appointed as head of a new M&A function to oversee asset sales and reduce debt. Great, so what else can they sell? Good question. A big name that's very topical is Fox's Biscuits, which management expected to sell for about £350 million in early 2017. Other disposal options include frozen brands such as Holland's Pies and own label products such as Solway Foods. It is therefore probable that the company will be able to sell enough assets to meet its 2019 liability, which would allow management to focus on refinancing the 2021 bonds. You mentioned the Goodfellas sale earlier. There were issues about using the sale proceeds to pay down the 2019s. Can you elaborate? Definitely. Some bondholders believe that all three tranches of the notes, so the 19s and the two tranches of the 2021s, should be paid down from the Goodfellas sale on a pro rata basis. Unfortunately, the company has sent out mixed messages on this point saying on a call in March that it cannot prioritize the 2019s over the 2021s. However, in June, it said the reverse, with management saying it was quote-unquote sensible to pay down the notes that are maturing first. Alright, so Boparan's capital structure contains three tranches of senior notes that rank pari passu. Is there anything else that you think is important? Well, the RCF and a relatively immaterial amount of finance leases rank ahead of the notes. The other important point is that the company had a 315.2 million pension scheme net deficit as of the end of April, although it's not clear where the claims and their various amounts sit in the company's corporate structure. We assume that pension claims do not benefit from any security over the group's assets, and we rank them peri pursue with the notes. 
However, in an insolvency scenario, there is the possibility that these claims may increase and that the UK Pension Protection Fund, together with the pension regulator, could intervene and effectively rank the pension ahead of the unsecured creditors. Rob, you recently put together a waterfall analysis on Boparan, which is available on our website. What is your understanding in terms of note holder recoveries? We project par recoveries in our base and upside cases, while note holders receive a 33 to 36.1% recovery in our downside case, though this depends on certain asset sale assumptions. Note, however, that the total return improves to 55.5% for the sterling 2021 notes and 60.3% for the euro 2021 notes when accounting for early redemption from asset sale proceeds including the sale of the biscuit division. However, these figures are clearly below where the notes are currently trading in the mid to low 90s. Therefore, there's a real risk of capital loss if the company's performance deteriorates. Great, so what's the company's plan with respect to its capital structure? It hasn't communicated anything specific, but we expect it to delever by repaying its 2019 notes and, concurrently, pushing back the maturity of its RCF to early 2021. Management then has some time to turn the business around operationally, allowing the company to refinance its roughly 600 million of senior notes due in 2021. With lower leverage and a more stable business, management no doubt hopes to lower its coupon payments. But a lot can happen until then, and it's impossible to, it's impossible to predict how the market will price risk at that point in time. Lastly, let's turn to our final section on covenants, where we will be discussing some of the market trends with respect to recent bond issuances. Minakshi, the European high-yield market has in recent years been a sell-side bonanza, with issuers approaching the market with very flexible covenants. Recently, we saw investors push back with deals like Sersa, Fedrioni and Tekem. Is the tide turning? Thanks, Sean. There is a definite recalibration of this trend. 2017 was an absolute frenzy with issuers approaching the market with high yield light type covenants. Now some had packages so diluted that the covenants had almost no protections to offer. Issuers have continued to approach the market in 2018 with loose covenant packages. To give you an example, we recently saw Altice France raise 1.75 billion of senior secured notes price at 8.125% and euro 1 billion of senior secured notes priced at 5.8 to refinance a portion of its outstanding 2022s. The builder basket in these bonds were backdated to 2014 and that's more than four years and accumulated credit was not even disclosed. Now this gave Altice access to a sizable RP basket at inception. Almost all the issuances carry carve-outs based on grower EBITDA baskets with the added flexibility to boost EBITDA calculations. The possibility of cash and value leakage has been immense in most credits. In recent months, we have seen greater buy-side pushback on low coupon rates and loose documentation. This is good news and very welcome in the current climate. We saw Sersa Gaming and Tekim having to amend their deal documentation. Sersa had to tighten its leverage level to less than three, three times for accessing RP baskets. It had to reduce its upfront credit by half, remove its leverage-based portability feature, 
remove its 10% at the rate 103 call feature on its Euro notes, and also cap its synergy-related EBITDA ad-packs. Uh, uh, it also had to remove a separate 80 million unrestricted subsidiary basket and reduce the leverage ratio at which excess proceeds offer steps down to three times EBITDA. Techem, the German metering group, despite its good free cash flow and cash generation, had to amend its RP language to close a loophole facilitating transfer of value to unrestricted subsidiaries, and like SASA, had to increase the consolidated total net leverage ratio for accessing RPs. So, does this mean that some issuers are circumspect about coming to market? Absolutely. In fact, a few deals were pulled from the market owing to unfavorable market conditions. The list is getting longer and it has credits like Synthoma, Prime Energy, Aragvi, Aldisa, Ithaca Energy, Salt, Vivo Energy. Great. So why the increased investor pushback? This could be because investors are being selective about the credits they choose in the sponsor-driven leverage loan and bond space. Asset managers are negotiating harder on covenant terms. We are now in an environment where various central banks are phasing out their quantitative easing policies, increasing interest rates gradually, and the ECB is gradually reducing its pace of bond buying. These factors mean that while high yield supply remains high, issuers looking for yield would have options in the corporate bond space and crossover and low invest investment credit names. Also, historically, the rate of default on high yield credits has always been low, but asset managers may be getting concerned about the prospect of facing a negative credit cycle turn without adequate creditor protection. It sounds like issuers are able to cherry-pick flexibilities. Are there any favourites? Any features that investors need to look out for particularly? Um, the generally dilutive features have been out there for a while, but if I had to pick one in the current climate, it would be the unusual addbacks to EBITDA. The spectrum for addbacks ranges from aggressive, where we see addbacks for anticipated cost savings and synergies, to very aggressive, like in WFS and OLTs, where we saw uncapped addbacks not just for anticipated cost savings and synergies, but also for expense reductions reasonably expected to occur within a very wide time frame, like 18 or 24 months. Now, EBITDA is a non-accounting standard which may be easily manipulated, making it easy for companies to master actual performance. Adjustments to this metric has a domino effect across the RPs and the debt and current thresholds. And in credits featuring EBITDA-related growth baskets, it can make it very difficult for investors to actually gauge the basket caps. It is possibly the single most effective factor facilitating cash and RP leakage. The good news is that markets have tightened and some issuers like Sursa and Siva are capping EBITDA addbacks. Siva capped it at 20% of EBITDA within 18 months. That's interesting. So what are the other notable trends? So in addition to nuanced covenant flexibility, we have also seen subtle trends diluting these structural protections generally accorded to high-yield bondholders. Um, in terms of covenant flexibility, we saw issuances like Altees, Fedrigioni, and Siva featuring unlimited acquisition acquired debt baskets that are not subject to the customary senior secured leverage ratio test. This makes it easier for issuers to acquire debt for M&A purposes by merely meeting the ratio debt test or 
or having their FCCR being no worse than at the, than at the start of the transaction. A number of deals also featured leverage-based portability, although the buy side is showing less appetite for these provisions. They were accepted by the market in Vising, but were removed from Sersa and Fedrigioni's final bond documentation. Limited condition acquisition flexibility um, is another feature that has been present in almost all deals which contain EBITDA addbacks, permitting issuers to test ratios on the date of definitive arrangements. While it started in the context of m and transactions, it has now been extended to situations like reorganizations and restructurings, which is off-market. In terms of structural dilution, we saw increased issuances of senior notes, which automatically pushes the bondholders down the capital structure. Turning to the SSN universe, we find credits like Onto Global and Siva, which feature low guarantor coverage. Credits like Fedrigioni SSNs were issued of collaterals comprising of financial assets, like intercompany receivables or material bank accounts, or just share security, um, as was done in Telecolumbus. The quality of collateral, the holy grail in SSN issuance, is often compromised. Bondholders in most SSN issuances often have to share collateral with super senior debt, like credit facilities, RCFs, and currency hedging counterparties. Commodity heading, unusually, has also qualified as super senior debt in credits like Matalan. We have also seen deals like Telecolumbus, where the issuance contemplates super senior debt in the future, as opposed to announcing the super senior creditors at the very outset of the bond issuance. Great. So do we expect to see any particular types of transaction in the upcoming months in the high yield space? We expect to see more payment in kind deals coming to the market. We already saw Vizinc, the independent digital bank, bring the second pick of the year to the market with its Euro 550 million issuance. We may also see more LBOs coming to the market after Techem's recent Euro 465 million SSNs due 2026, which priced at 6%. The market did see LBO action with the likes of KKR and Flora Foods, the Thomson Reuters Blackstone, and the Carlyle Axo deals earlier in the year. Uh, but it's very unlikely that LBO activity will reach the levels we saw in the heydays of 2007. Thanks, Manakshi. Very interesting. Now, this is the end of the Reorg Europe podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we will be back in two weeks.